All right. So we are going to begin this evening um, in kind of a unique way. Um, as all of you know, you who are here, and of course you who are watching online, um, as you all know, this has been a tremendously difficult time for every single church in America, probably the world, um, as we've dealt with this pandemic. And it's, uh, it's been particularly challenging for me as a leader because like every other pastor, you know, I'm trying to figure out how do we lead a church through something like this. And it seems like the, the biggest momentum killer. And, and, and I've talked so many times about how I long for the day when we can all be back together. When all, we can be in the same room when our church doesn't have to socially distance because we were not created for social distancing. It's a product of necessity and one that I hope and pray will be a thing of the past uh, someday soon. But in spite of that, God is good. In spite of the challenges, in spite of the difficulties, in spite of the, the ways that we have been apart, somehow, some way, we still have a God who's at work, right? We still worship a God who is building his church. God is not caught off guard by any of this. God is not surprised by any of this. And so he is still at work in people's hearts. He is still at work pushing back darkness he is still at work building the kingdom of his son. And so today we get to celebrate um, the Lord doing just that here in the after church. Uh, today we are recognizing new membership. Uh, we have, uh, last week we had an orientation for two families that uh, have considered and prayed about and, um, and really thought about the, uh, the implications of joining this crazy church. And uh, for some reason, they have decided to proceed. Uh, and I'm very, very excited uh, that they did. So if I could have the Britons and the Hamiltons come up and join me here. Because I want you as a church, uh, as we're you know, all over the place... I want you guys to be a part of, uh, of seeing them here. Um, babe, can you see them on the screen or, or do we need to squeeze in a bit? Needs a minute. Okay. So uh, those of you who are members of our church, um, I definitely know you guys are not in the frame. Uh, Hamiltons, if I could have you come in and stand uh, right over on this side. Thank you. Scooch in more towards the lights. Yeah. Try to get shoulders on the lights there. Perfect. Uh, so you guys who have joined the church before know that uh, there is this thing that we have called the membership covenant. And we don't view membership in this church as being something that is flippant. We don't view it as something that is easily walked into or easily walked out of. And we believe that we're covenanted in relationship with each other and with the Lord. And so uh, these two families have uh, read over, prayed over, and again considered uh, what it means to be a member of the after church and uh, have decided that they want to proceed. And so before you as a congregation, I want to uh, briefly allow them the opportunity to speak to you this commitment. And so, Britons and Hamiltons, do you before our congregation here and virtually 
covenant to this church in giving your time, your talents, and treasures to the kingdom of God in how we serve the Lord here. Awesome. Do you align with the mission of the after church, committing to regularly pray for the after church, the city of South Bend, and the kingdom of God? We do. Sweet. Off to a good start. Uh, here's a difficult one. Are you willing to follow and submit to the leadership of the after church so long as they are faithful to scripture? Excellent. And do you commit to joining this church with a commitment to the kingdom over everything? Awesome. Now, I want to address you as a congregation. And I understand that some of you will not be able to uh, participate um, directly. But uh, I also would like for you, the, the, the ones that are logged in on Facebook, uh, you can write this in the comments uh, on our Facebook stream. Because this is not just about the commitment that these two families are making. This is a commitment that you as a church are making alongside of them. And so, after church members, are you willing to commit to these two families in prayer and in service together? And if you are, please say, I do. Write in the comments, we are. Very good. Are you committed to serving the needs of these families and these families serving the needs that you have? Are you committed together to the mission of this church in seeking Jesus Christ? I'm excited that we now have these two families in our church affirmed by both their words and yours. And so let me just take a moment and pray so that we can bless uh, this mission together. Lord, thank you so much for what you are doing here. Thank you for these new families. Lord, thank you that you're growing your church. God, thank you so much for the exuberant young voice uh, of children. Lord, that's a sign of life, uh, a sign of joy, and, and we celebrate it together. God, I thank you so much that, that these families are covenanting together with us and that we're moving forward as a church in an exciting future. Lord, we love you. We're thankful that you're at work and we commit to partnering with you in this work. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you both. And thank you, young lady. <laughs> you guys can be seated. All right. So... As you know, probably, hopefully, we have been uh, taking a short break on our series through the book of Ecclesiastes. And last week and this week, we're taking a special look at the Christmas story, uh, specifically looking at some of the elements of the nativity that uh, have been, I think, misunderstood or uh, not properly conveyed uh, to us, and, and I think that there's a lot of wealth that we're missing out on. And so you can go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 2. In 1943, the, uh, the World War, uh, World War II, was waging. The entire nation was caught in its wake. 
And of all the wars that have been fought by our nation, some argue that World War II perhaps had the greatest effects on our culture. Among other things, World War II sparked an industrial boom uh, as American companies produced materials and weapons for our troops abroad. Many companies halted their production of normal products and instead produced materials under government contracts, something that we have seen this year uh, during the pandemic. Another thing that happened uh, during this time is that the number of women in the workforce increased dramatically. Many of the jobs that had been filled by men who went off to war were now filled by their wives. All told, there were over 16 million Americans that were serving in the war, about 10% of the population. And the adults in this generation were dubbed the greatest generation. The cultural narratives all around the country were dominated by the war as well. Nearly everything was connected thematically to the war. That included television, movies, music, And it's out of that cultural narrative that came one of the most well-known songs ever written. Written from the perspective of a soldier longing to be home from war, James Gannon wrote the following words. I'll be home for Christmas. You can plan on me. Please have snow and mistletoe and presents on the tree. Christmas Eve will find me where the love light gleams. I'll be home for Christmas, if only in my dreams. The song was an instant classic, quickly becoming the most requested song among service members and, of course, the members of their families. This Somber, melancholy song touches on one of the most treasured ideals of the Christmas season, and that is the desire for loved ones to be together. Christmas is a time when families gather to enjoy one another. Many of the families in this church will be traveling to other places uh, to be with family, which is one of the reasons why I announced to you this evening we will not be having a Christmas Eve service this year. Um, in addition to families traveling, there's also the COVID situation, and uh, unfortunately that makes it impossible for us to all meet together on Christmas Eve. So, what I encourage you to do instead is tune in at 5.30, and I will be uh, on Facebook live um, giving a short devotional. If you can't catch it live, then I encourage you to catch it later on, and to watch that together as a family. So, this is a time that families gather together. And so it's no accident that when asked the question, what is the true meaning of Christmas? Many people answer family. Now don't worry. I'm not planning on raining on that parade tonight. I'm not going to denigrate Bing Crosby. The truth is, family is one of the true meanings of Christmas. But I want, I want to show you tonight from the scriptures that Christmas is not merely about your family. Christmas is about your family in so much as your family is an experiential analogy of the family of God. And what I want us to see tonight is that God became a man in order to bring his family together. 
And specifically what I want you to see is that God did this using a broken, dysfunctional, messed up family. Uh, By a show of hands or by a comment on the live stream saying me, how many of you would say that you have a dysfunctional family? Talking about your extended family. How many of you would say dysfunctional family? Right, that's almost all of us. Why is my daughter raising her hand? (laughs) Unbelievable. (laughs) Nearly everyone says that they have a dysfunctional family. Now, here's, here's a more fun question. How many of your extended family members would raise their hand and say that their family is dysfunctional because of you? Maybe we're not so, uh, you know, content to raise our hands there. But the fact is, families everywhere are dysfunctional. Broken because they're full of broken people. Families are filled with sinners who are forced to be in close relationship with each other. And as the saying goes, you can't choose your family. And so brokenness abounds. But for some people, that brokenness seems to be a bit more tangible than with everyone else. For, for some people, the brokenness of your family is hitting a whole lot closer to home. For some people, especially during a season where it's all about families gathering, there, there, there's a, a level of discomfort for you. Perhaps because of someone that you're going to see. Perhaps because you're the one who's showing up to the family event, bringing the brokenness with you. And so for a lot of people during this time, that's a difficult element, is the brokenness of the family that you are either experiencing in the extension of the family or even experiencing at home yourself. And Jesus' family was no different. The family of Jesus was filled with conflict. It was filled with brokenness. It was filled with turmoil. The family of Jesus was filled with judgmentalism. It was filled with unbelief. It was filled with argument. It was filled with people pointing fingers and calling each other nuts. One of the places we see this is in the unbelief of his family during his ministry. In, uh, in Mark chapter 3, verse 21, you guys don't have to turn there, but in Mark three twenty-one, Jesus has just cast out a demon, right? And there's a, a crowd that is gathered and his family comes to get him. They, they want to seize him. Mark 3.21, it says, When his family heard it, they went out to seize him for they were saying, he is out of his mind. Okay, this is the family of Jesus. He's just performed a miracle. He's just cast out a demon. He is in the midst of his his public ministry with his 12 apostles. And his family, his family tries to go get him to say, you need to come home. You're crazy. In John chapter 7, verse 5, we see that Jesus' brothers, his own brothers, 
were not believers. Uh, John chapter 7, um, it says, uh, I'll start in verse 4. No one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Not even his brothers, okay? Forget about everybody else in the world. Jesus' own brothers did not believe in him. We think that we have dysfunctional families. Um, Imagine being one of them. Imagine being one of them today, hearing us talk about dysfunctional family, and they might say, oh, you think you have a dysfunctional family? I have a brother who thinks he's God in the flesh. How about that? Beat that, drunk uncle. My brother thinks he's God. Now, rewind that further and think about Jesus growing up. If we find in adulthood that Jesus' brothers and sisters did not believe in him, that they thought he was out of his mind. Imagine what this looked like as Jesus was growing up as a child. Imagine if your oldest brother was God in the flesh, which, of course, you do not believe. You want to talk about sibling rivalry? You want to talk about being compared to the good one? Nobody experienced that more than the brothers and sisters of Jesus. I am telling you, no one felt more pressure from their parents to be like their older brother more than the brothers and sisters of Jesus Christ. Perhaps they heard, why can't you be more like Jesus? And their response was, well, because he's God. Their family was dysfunctional. But what I want to show you tonight is that that turmoil, that dysfunction, that conflict... That began before Jesus was ever even born. This this dysfunction that we find didn't start with Jesus claiming to everyone else that he was God. This dysfunction started before he was ever delivered. And that's what we're going to see in Luke chapter 2. And and, and hopefully, in Luke chapter 2, what what we're going to see is that our nativity scenes have not been telling us the full picture. Raise your hand if you've ever been to a Christmas play. Any kind of Christmas play before. Okay, we've all been there, right? When I was growing up, there was this, uh, this Christmas play in our town that was enormous. It was called This Man Called Jesus. There was this huge church that was like 30 minutes from our house. And they put on the biggest Christmas production of anyone in the surrounding hour. Okay, so people from all over the place would drive to this live production. And it was this huge, huge thing in a big tent. And they had all these live animals that were a part of it. There was incredible, you know, special effects and and, and incredibly talented musicians and singers. And it was this enormous thing, right? And we all know what the scene looks like. It looks like this. For those of you who are online, I'm pointing at a a typical nativity scene, okay? This, This nativity scene where Joseph... And Mary ride in on a donkey or a camel the night before Jesus is born. Mary is about this big and ready to pop any second. 
Joseph and Mary show up in, in, in Bethlehem and they get to the Bethlehem Holiday Inn and they knock on the door and they're like, we need a room. And the very gruff, very mean innkeeper looks at them and says, there is no room in the inn. Out with you. And we're all like, oh man, that guy, we know where he's going when he dies, right? How could you send away the Holy Family? And so Joseph and Mary, with nowhere else to go, find a stable where the animals are tied up and they're like, well, I guess this is the only place we'll be able to stay. And Joseph and Mary that night uh, stay in this stable and Jesus is born and they lay him in a manger and some amount of hours later, shepherds show up and, and the shepherds are there worshiping and then the three wise men show up with, with the star above the stable and, and we have this idyllic scene. The problem is, historically, very little of that is actually true. And the details matter. As we looked at last week, the wise men, for example, were not present at the scene. And, and so I encourage you, if you missed last week's message, to go back and listen to that. The wise men don't show up until Jesus is two. We looked at the fact last week that they didn't arrive the night that Jesus was born because the, the text clearly says, while they were there, the days were completed and Jesus was born. And so not being total dummies, they likely made this trip with plenty of time to spare. More than likely, it was weeks, maybe even months after they arrived before Jesus was born. And the picture that we have of the typical nativity is not an accurate one. This, this traditional view misses so much. And I'm not knocking on it because I'm a Grinch, even though that may be true. That's not the reason why I knock on the nativity. The reason is because we're missing so much wealth that's here, so much truth. There, there's so much meaning in this text that we have just lost to empty, empty tradition. Like we talked about last week with the story of the wise men. I, I hope you guys agree that that story is a whole lot more compelling and meaningful than what we find in a typical nativity. So what is the right view? And, and why does it matter? How does it change the meaning of the story? And, and what lessons can we take? So Luke Chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Uh, it's hard for me to read this passage and not think about Linus, um, in my, one of my favorite uh, 
uh, depictions of, of this passage. We have Linus reading uh, this story in, in Charlie Brown's Christmas play. Uh, so I always hear his voice uh, when, when I'm reading uh, this text. But what I want us to do in this passage is to focus on one word. Specifically, one word in these seven verses. And this one word alone will change literally everything you have ever heard or seen about the first Christmas. That's a tall, tall order, right? This one word will change everything you've ever heard about the first Christmas. And it is the last word in our passage. The last word in our passage. I'm reading out of the ESV. If you're reading out of a different version, maybe it's not the very last word. But here in the ESV, verse 7. She gave birth to her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger. Because there was no place for them in the inn. Again, think about, think about the Christmas play that you've all been to, right? Joseph and Mary show up on the camel or the donkey or the horse or whatever they're, they're riding on. And the first place they go to in Bethlehem is the inn. And that innkeeper, whomever he was, turns them away. For whatever reason, there's no room. No vacancy. The inn is full. Sorry, you guys have to leave. And we think, well, maybe he's misunderstood. Maybe he wasn't a jerk. Maybe he's just a businessman. And he's like, listen, I wish I could help, but I can't kick anybody out of the rooms. The inn is full. And so that's why Joseph and Mary had to go to this ramshackle stable. Or, or some depictions have, have it as a cave. And we say, well, Jesus was born in this, this stable or this, this cave because there's no room for them in the inn. But what if we have misunderstood, nay, deeply misunderstood this word in? In the original Greek, the word translated as in is the word kataluma. Kataluma. And the question that we have to ask is whether or not in is the best translation of the word kataluma. And I think, based on the evidence that we're about to examine, that this is not the proper translation of the word kataluma. I also want to say, I am not standing up here heretically making something up out of thin air, all right? I encourage you to go and research this yourself because there's a wealth of things that I won't have time to get into tonight. So Google Kataluma tonight and you will not be disappointed. K-A-T-A-L-U-M-A. Kataluma. Where else is this word used in the New Testament? There are, there are two places. So let's look at two places where the Greek word kataluma is used in the New Testament. The first is Mark 14, 14. Mark chapter 14, verse 14. At this point, this is towards the end of Jesus' ministry. 
Um, Jesus uh, has already been anointed at Bethany. Judas has already uh, signed up to betray Jesus. And we find Jesus preparing for the Passover. Mark chapter 14 He gives his disciples instructions for going and setting up the Last Supper. Verse 13, he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him and wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room that I may eat the Passover with my disciples? Where is my guest room? In the Greek, it says, where is my kataluma? Where is my kataluma where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And as we all know, Jesus and his disciples go to this house and there's an upper room where he and his disciples share together the Last Supper. That's the first place. Another place where this is used is in a parallel passage in Luke So, turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22, exact same uh, parallel passage here. This is the Passover with his disciples, the, the Last Supper. Chapter 22, verse 11. Tell the master of the house, the teacher says to you, Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? So here in Luke, okay, and that's particularly significant because that's the exact same author that we're talking about from chapter 2. So Luke himself uses the word kataluma the exact same way that it's used in Mark to refer to a guest room. Now, interestingly enough, in the Greek, there is a different word that is typically used to describe an inn, a hotel, a, a place where travelers stay with an innkeeper. And that is the Greek word pandakion. That word pandakion is used by Luke in Luke chapter 10. So look at Luke chapter 10. And in this particular story, this is the parable of the Good Samaritan, right? And we know what happens in the parable of the Good Samaritan. You have this guy who gets beat up by robbers and he's left for dead on the side of the road. And and so then uh, religious people keep passing him by. And then there's a Good Samaritan who stops and takes care of him. Right? So this Good Samaritan stops and takes care of him. And what does he do? He, He picks him up and he brings him somewhere. Verse uh, uh, 35, I'm sorry, verse 33, a Samaritan as he journeyed came to where he was and when he saw him he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. This particular story not only has the inn, but also the innkeeper. Okay, so we're definitely talking about an inn and an innkeeper. You may have noticed that in chapter 2, the word innkeeper is absent. The innkeeper is mentioned here in reference to the inn. 
This is clearly a reference to what we would typically call the Holiday Inn, the hotel. This is a public place for travelers. And the Good Samaritan takes him there and tells the innkeeper, here's money. And if you need any more, when I come back, I'll pay you the difference. You got that, innkeeper? So that is the Greek word pandakion, which again is not the word used in chapter 2, kataluma. In addition to this evidence, we have further evidence from the text that the Holy Family has not been relegated to a lonely stable, a, a, a barn. One of them being the fact that, as we discussed, they are not arriving on the night of Jesus' birth. Clearly, it says there that while they were there, the days were completed for Mary. So they are there for days, weeks, maybe even months. There's, there's a period of time that they are there in Bethlehem. You're telling me that Joseph, in all that time, couldn't find somewhere suitable for his pregnant wife to sleep. I find that very, very hard to believe. That in days, weeks, he couldn't find somewhere better than a ramshackle stable. In addition to that, in chapter 1, we find the Holy Family visiting Elizabeth. Chapter 1, verse 39. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leapt in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit and exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Now, what is the distance from Bethlehem to Elizabeth's house? In Judah, five miles. It's five miles. So you're telling me that in chapter two, Joseph and Mary are looking for a place to stay, and there's no room anywhere, there's no vacancy anywhere. Would they say, Well, I guess we're gonna stay in a stable? No. If I'm Joseph, I'm like, Well, well Elizabeth and Zechariah only live five miles from here. Let's ride the donkey a little further, or let's walk a little further, or, 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 or ride the camel a little further. Furthermore, Bethlehem was a very small village, very small. Bethlehem was not on any major road. Thus, historians tell us that it is highly unlikely, very unlikely, that there would even be an inn to begin with in Bethlehem. Add to that Jerusalem. Jerusalem, the capital, is only a one-hour walk from Bethlehem. So we put all of those pieces together, and it seems to me to be very far-fetched that this is where Joseph and Mary would be staying for Jesus to be born. So what's the real story well, when we use the translation that is used for Cataluma in parallel passages by Luke himself, guest room, we find what's actually going on. And it changes everything. 
Let's ask the question, why is Joseph in Bethlehem? Joseph has been called to Bethlehem because of the census. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. To be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. So Joseph is returning because of a census to his ancestral home. Even if he himself has never lived there, this is where his family is from. This is where his roots are. So he has to return there in order to be taxed along with the rest of his family regarding the property that has been in their family for generations. And so because of that, because of this census, the reason why they are there in the first place and where this dude is from, it is highly likely that Joseph and Mary would have been staying with members of Joseph's family. The reason why they're going there is to be registered in their ancestral home. And so Joseph shows up and he's a Bethlehemite. Family ties. That's his roots. He's going to stay with family. It would be unthinkable for them to stay in an inn even if there was one. Historian Kenneth Bailey puts it like this. Even if he had never been there before, He can appear suddenly at the home of a distant cousin, recite his genealogy, and he's among friends. Joseph had only to say, I am Joseph, son of Jacob, son of Mathan, son of Eleazar, the son of Eliud. And the immediate response would have been, you are welcome here. What can we do for you? If Joseph did have some member of the extended family resident in the village, he was honor bound to seek them out. He had to go seek out his family, by honor. Furthermore, even if he did not have family or friends in the village, as a member of the famous house of David, for the sake of David, he would still be welcomed into almost any village home. That's the culture. This is a culture that has one of their highest virtues as hospitality. One of the highest virtues in culture, and we see this in in various passages, when a stranger comes into a town and is taken in. One of the highest virtues of this, this culture was hospitality. So if Joseph and Mary show up in Bethlehem, the first thing that they are honor bound to seek out is a member of the family. And the thing that the, the, the member of the family is honor bound to do is give them a place to stay. So they would have been shown to a family member's home. And even if in the unlikely scenario that there wasn't a direct relative, anybody else in the town would have been honor bound to let them stay. But it brings up this weird scenario. The weird scenario is they show up to this family member's house and there's no room in the Cataluma. There's no room in the guest room. Now, let me, let me give you guys a picture of what this looks like. Uh, Allison, if you want to go ahead and put up this, uh, this graphic. Now, if you're watching online, I encourage you, go onto Google Images, and again, type the word Cataluma. What I'm showing is one of the first few uh, uh, populated images there. It's just a cut 
out picture, uh, a drawing of a first century Israelite home. And so what we have here is a typical first century Israelite home. And so what you see is that there's a, a lower level and there's an upper level. And, and, and the way that these homes would have worked is that in the lower level, animals would be brought in at night and their body heat is helping the family stay warm. They, they want to make sure that their most prized animals are safe and they're not wandering out. And so they tie their animals there. There's a manger uh, on the lower level. On the upper level, you have living space. And on the upper level, you have the kataluma, the guest room. And so when a guest shows up at this house, they're put on the second floor in the kataluma. So Joseph and Mary show up to a house that maybe looked something like this. And this is based on archaeological finds and also the way that homes are still built in Palestinian villages today. So Jesus is born in this lower level where animals are kept, where a manger is present because there's no room in the kataluma. He's born downstairs rather than upstairs. But even knowing that, Something is still missing here. Something is still strange. Why are they downstairs? Even if there are people there first, okay, because that may be one of the reasons that we come up with. We, we go, okay, there's a census. A lot of people are traveling. A lot of people show up. And so maybe the home that they go to already has guests staying there. And, and maybe cousin Jim says, hey, listen, Joe, I would love to give you the guest room, but um, we, we got some more cousins up there already. You guys are going to have to sleep downstairs. But that's not how this culture would have operated. Surely a pregnant woman would have been given the kataluma. It was propriety. It was proper for a pregnant woman to be given the place of honor. So why are they downstairs? Why is Joseph and Mary not upstairs in the honored place for guests? The reason is because of their social situation. Mary is pregnant out of wedlock. Mary, as we know, has been made pregnant by the Holy Spirit. Joseph could have divorced her. They're engaged to be married. They're not married yet. They're betrothed. They're engaged. And we find that Joseph, being an honorable man, instead of putting her away quietly, follows the, the, the leading of the Holy Spirit to marry her anyway. But you can all imagine what everybody else is thinking. We all know what everybody else is thinking. They're like, oh, she got pregnant by the Holy Spirit, huh? <laughs> right. Uh, Joe, let me know wh when this baby is born if he looks like one of the Roman soldiers. <laughs> let me know. Uh, that kid's going to come out looking like the mailman, Joe. Everybody else around them is like, okay. Holy Spirit. Sure. I'll believe that. 
We know later on, we already looked at the text, we know that their family does not believe. The text says his family thinks he's crazy. He's nuts. That didn't start then, it starts now. It starts here. When Joseph and Mary start saying, she's pregnant, but but not because of me. She's pregnant because of God. The family is thinking, you're crazy. And Mary would have been a social outcast. She's a social outcast as a woman of disrepute. Jesus is, I can't use that word because there's kids in the room. An illegitimate child. (laughs) Jesus is an illegitimate child in this culture. And so Joseph and Mary show up. And it's cultural obligation for his family to provide them shelter and assist with the birth. But cultural obligation stops at the door. Sorry guys. Uh, You're going to have to sleep with the animals. There's no room. In the Cataluma. There's no room in the guest room, Joseph and Mary. You guys will stay down there. Jesus is born amongst sideways glances and, and hushed conversations about impropriety. Je- Jesus is born among a family that does not believe his legitimacy. And Joseph and Mary have to deal with this their entire lives. Their entire lives. This doesn't go away. His, bro- his own brother, his brothers, his sisters don't even believe in him. You think the rest of the family does? Absolutely not. The rest of the family thinks that they are crazy. These people are nuts. God in the flesh, what are you talking about? And so Jesus is born into deep familial brokenness. Jesus is born to the mother and father wearing a scarlet letter. Jesus is born to the mother and father who walk in with shame on their shoulders, who all the eyes look at them and go, wow, sinners. We can't choose our family. They're here, so we have to be obligated to give them shelter. But boy, we don't really want them here. We don't believe what they are saying. This actually is one of the reasons why God sends the shepherds there. Because he sent people to the baby Jesus to give him the worship that he deserves. So later on in chapter 2, the very next passage, the shepherds uh, are are, are greeted by this angelic choir. And the angels tell the shepherds, go into Bethlehem and find a baby laying in a manger. The Messiah has been born. And they're they're going crazy. They're freaking out. They're like, whoa, 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 the the promised Messiah is here. We have to go and worship him. And it says in verse 16, They went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. They see Joseph and Mary and the child and they're like, we just talked to the angels. The the, the angels showed us where to go. They told us that this baby is the Messiah. This is God in the flesh. This is the, the, the one that we've been waiting for, for generations. We worship your son as God. 
Verse 18. Verse 18 says, And all who heard it wondered. All who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. So the shepherds show up, they praise, and all who heard it wonder. Who's all? The people upstairs are all. Everybody else in the house, they're seeing this happen. And the shepherds are going crazy. They're bowing down to this baby. And all of these people are looking on like, what is going on? We, when, when we take a look at, at, at what this word means, this word wonder is, is the Greek word thaumatso. And, and thaumatso means to be incredulously surprised. To be incredulously surprised. This is a word that means, what? No way. You're, ki- you're kidding me, right? I'm shocked that you would even say something that nuts. That's what the word thaumatso means. All who heard it were incredulous at what the shepherds told them. Commentator David Guzik notes that Was I under 10 seconds? Yes. I got to have you guys start timing me next time. Commentator David Guzik notes that in the Greek, thaumatso, this word is in the aorist tense. And that means that it's a transient emotion. It's something that comes and passes quickly. So they, they react with shock and then quickly dismiss what they heard. They're incredulous. Uh, what? And then they quickly move on. They're like, forget what you're saying. We're moving on. So, so all the people who heard what the shepherds are saying are incredulous at what the shepherds tell them, and they're quickly like, no way. And then we're given in the very next verse a contrast. The, their, their reaction is contrasted with Mary. It says, but Mary, so all these people here are thelmatso, they're, they're incredulous, but Mary, not Mary, but Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. She does not react with incredulous surprise. She treasures what she has heard. She, she deeply considers it rather than quickly casting it off. And that word for treasured and pondered, this is in the imperfect tense in the Greek, which means that she's continuing to do this. It's a continued action. Over and over, she continues to ponder. She continues to treasure the words of the shepherds. This becomes what she holds on to. This is her rock. This is her anchor. For every single time for the rest of her life that somebody around her is going to cast doubt. Every single time that somebody around her in her own family is going to say, come on, Who'd you really get pregnant by, Mary? Who's actually Jesus' dad? When are you going to really tell us? This woman is an outcast. From even her own children. Mary treasures this in her heart. But we saw earlier that her other kids even. Mom, come on. You've said it a hundred times. We've heard this story, Mom. You're nuts too, if you believe it. Listen, 
all the family feels bad for you, mom. When are you just going to come out of the delusion, mom? They're outcasts. Jesus' family was as broken, as fractured, as filled with conflict as any of ours ever has been. And that is one of the most important aspects of the incarnation. Jesus entered into a broken family to remind us of a family that isn't. That's point number one, by the way, if you're taking notes. Jesus entered into a broken family to remind us of a family that isn't broken. He entered into a family with a scarlet letter. He entered into a family that had shame. He entered into a family of outcasts. He he entered into a family where everybody was disagreeing. He entered into a family where there was conflict. He entered into a family where they were all fighting and pointing fingers and sinning against one another. He entered into that broken family to remind us of a family that isn't like that. You see, family is what I call an experiential analogy. An experiential analogy simply is an analogy that you experience. Scripture tells us of experiential analogies like marriage. Marriage, we find from Ephesians chapter 5, is an analogy of the relationship between Christ and the church. And so in marriage, we live out this small shadow, this this picture of what the, the marriage between Christ and the church looks like. And so we get to experience and live out a little bit of what it looks like for Jesus to sacrifice himself for the church, for the church to submit to Christ. It's an experiential analogy. Parenting is an experiential analogy because we understand the concept that God loves us the way that a father loves his children. I understood that concept growing up, but until that little knucklehead was born, I didn't know what it was like to love a child. And the first time I held him in my arms, it, it, it came up in, I didn't know that it was there. It was unlocked in me. And I was like, oh my God, I love this kid. Now I know what it means for a father to love his children. This is a small picture of, of how God loves us. Parenting is an experiential analogy. Having parents is an experiential analogy because the way that we relate to them is a small picture of how we relate to God. And so family is an experiential analogy of the family of God. This family that's not bound to genetics. This, This family that doesn't depend on who mom and dad is. The family that depends on who the heavenly father is. That we are all joined together by the gospel. And so when we look at our broken families, our our families that are filled with sin, that that are filled with pain, our our families that are filled with dysfunction and, and conflict, what it should lead us to is the gospel. to to the hope that we have for our future, to the knowledge that this is not how it was meant to be. This is the result of sin. This is not God's best for us. God has something better. The good parts of our family remind us of that as well. 
in the things that we love about our family. Think about the joyous times that you've spent with family. The, the joy of Christmas morning, for example. Those times, those moments that you wish you could hit pause and, and they would last forever. Those things are meant to bring to mind the beautiful future in which the family will last in perfection forever. And so that's why I said earlier that the Christmas is indeed about family. It's about family, the family of God. And, and in a sense, your family, but in so much as your family is an experiential analogy of God's family, even if your family is desperately broken, what you think beyond repair. Even if your family is so dysfunctional, you think there's no hope. Even if you are the ones bringing the shame to your family, Jesus says the gospel is for you because I entered into a family like that. Because your marriage is not about you. Your, your, your parenting it's not about you. Your family is not about you. And Christmas is not about you. But it is for you. It's not about you. It's about Christ. But it's for you to set your minds on Jesus. He, he has given these experiential analogies to us as a gift to turn our eyes upward. The incarnation, by the way, was God doing something. It was God doing something about our brokenness. It was God doing something about our broken families. It was God entering into the most broken family that you could possibly enter into to say, I save this too. I save this too. Later on, much, much later on in, in, in the life of Jesus, one of the most incredible transformations that we find is his brother, James. Jesus' brother, James, who in the passage in Mark, we read among his family members saying, you're crazy, we've come to seize you. And, and in the passage in John where it says even his brothers didn't believe, later on we find James, the brother of Jesus, he starts his epistle, James, a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. The, the Greek word there is doulos. I, I am a slave of Jesus Christ. His brother came to a place where the gospel changed him. And he said, I'm a slave to my big bro because my big bro is actually God. And James became a pillar in the early church. Jesus entered into the most broken family filled with shame and conflict to give hope to every single one of us in that familial uh, conflict and brokenness. He entered into our brokenness to save it. This is point number two, very similarly. Jesus entered into a broken family in order to adopt us into his family. Jesus entered into a broken family in order to adopt us into his family. The incarnation was all about adoption. The gospel was a work of, a, of adoption. 
Galatians 3.26, for in Christ Jesus, you are all now sons and daughters of God through faith. 2 Corinthians 6.18, I will be a father to you and you shall be sons and daughters to me. 1 John 3.1, how great is the love the father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God and that is what we are. Romans 8.15, you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. You received the spirit of adoptions as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Galatians 4, 4 through 6. But when the fullness of time had come, this is Luke chapter 2. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman. Luke chapter 2. Born under under the law to redeem those who were born under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir with God. The incarnation was Jesus coming to this earth to adopt us as his sons and daughters. And in perfectly appropriate fashion, the incarnation was an adoption. We, we have in, in Luke chapter 2, adoption. Jesus was not the biological child of Joseph. Joseph was his adoptive father. Joseph raised a child that was not biologically his. Joseph adopted Jesus. But, but Jesus was adopting Joseph even as Joseph was adopting him. It's a double adoption. As Joseph was obedient to the leading of the Holy Spirit and being obedient to Mary, Mary, and adopt Jesus as his own son, Jesus was also adopting Joseph. Christmas is about family. The family of God that we can be adopted into through the incarnation of Jesus Christ. In the most broken situation, he entered into that brokenness to say, I'm adopting you as my own. And we get to play that out in our own families, right? We get to be the ambassadors of the gospel in our families. And whatever the brokenness in your family looks like, whether it's the dysfunction that surrounds you and you're the only light, or maybe you're the one who's bringing the dysfunction, maybe you're experiencing things like this, maybe you're raising a child not your own. Maybe you have a scarlet letter. Whatever it is, Jesus adopts. Us. That is the story of the nativity. Okay, that's what a stable won't tell you. That's what this cute, adorable, hallmark picture does not show. The gospel shows something so much more beautiful. So much more raw and and meaningful. It shows us that we're in the midst of a spiritual war. A war that wages every single day between the forces of darkness and, and the family of God. As we've talked before in this church about the kingdom, establishing that that we're not citizens of this world, we're citizens of the kingdom. This this is not our home. 
This is not home base. And right now, here in the midst of our brokenness, in the midst of sin, in the midst of wrecked families, in the midst of war, our longing is to be home with family. I'll be home for Christmas if only in my dreams. We long for it. In the meantime, we have to be the light in our broken family. We have to be the gospel ambassadors to our flesh and blood. We have to be the ones in the midst of the dysfunction to say there is hope beyond this world, beyond this brokenness, beyond this sin, and I want to show it to you. And we also have to, to, to start seeing the church differently. The church is not a place where you come and visit. The church is not a place where, where you punch your time card, do your Jesus time, and then you leave and go back to your normal life. The church is the family of God. That's, that's who we are. When we look around this room, and I, I know if you're online, you can't do that, but as we look around this room, we're not among friends, we're among family. We celebrated today the covenanting of more people into this church. This is a church family. A family, by the way, that is not perfect by any means. A family that is full of sin, full of brokenness, longing to one day be perfect but not there yet. A family that's been adopted but longing to go home. A family that loves and cherishes one another. A a family that that may fight sometimes on the real. There may be conflict here at times. Sometimes we might fail to, to agree. We might fail to get along. But a family that thanks to Christmas and Easter will someday spend eternity together. So we might as well get used to each other now because we're gonna be together forever. Forever. You are stuck with us. Christmas is about family, the family of God. In the midst of brokenness, Jesus entered into shame and sin to rescue us, to adopt us, to let us be a part of his family filled with eternal hope. That is the true meaning of Christmas. I don't want you to go home necessarily and throw away your nativity scene. If you do, I won't stop you. (laughs) But my hope is that from now on, every single time you look at a nativity scene, you remember, this is not the whole story. There's so much more to the story. Perhaps, perhaps you might even be that guy or that girl at your cousin's house, as everybody's putting up the nativity scene, maybe you're that annoying cousin who's like, gather around. Let me tell you the real story about the nativity. Jesus wasn't born in a barn, you know. What? What are you talking about? Regardless, I pray that we might be the ambassadors of hope in our broken families to welcome people into adoption into the family of God for eternity. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for adoption. God, thank you so much that you entered into brokenness, into sin, into shame, into into being an outcast. Thank you that from your birth to your death, 
you faced everything that this world could throw at you from the closest people to you, from your brothers, from your sisters, from your aunts and your uncles, from your cousins. Lord, thank you that you willingly walked through that and then willingly walked to the cross to adopt us into a family that lasts forever. God, I pray for anyone under the sound of my voice, here, watching online right now, listening to this podcast at a later date. God, I pray if there's anyone under the sound of my voice who has never been adopted into your family, Lord, that right now your spirit would call them to come home, to come home for Christmas. What better time to be adopted into the family of God than Christmas? God, I pray if there's anyone in that situation, Lord, that you would show them your kindness, you would show them your love, that that you would wrap your arms around them and, and beckon them to surrender, to repent of their sin, to place their hope completely on you as their Savior, to commit to you as Lord and Master, to commit to being doulos, slave, servant, to you, kurios, Lord. And God, I pray for every single one of us that we would be the ambassadors of that hope and that gospel and that peace in our broken families, in our broken situations. And that in a few days from now, as we gather around Christmas trees and stockings and eggnog, Lord, that we would have this eternal hope shining in our eyes and that in the words Merry Christmas, we would have the joy of adoption. Let us be that kind of church. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen, if you would stand, we will end in worship. Yes, indeed, we will sing joy, joy for what Jesus has done for us. My prayer is that over the next few days, as every single one of us is uh, spending time with family, whether it's in person or over Zoom, whatever it is that you guys are, are doing, as we're around loved ones, that we might have opportunity to be ambassadors for the gospel, that we might have opportunity to share the joy that we have because of what Jesus has done for us. So much more than a cute story, so much more than a Hallmark card, we've been adopted as sons and daughters into the eternal family of God. And I pray that we might have opportunities to be the bearers of that hope as we celebrate his birth. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for the truth of your word. God, thank you that that you have given us such hope. Thank you that you've given us such joy to sing. And Lord, I pray that we would celebrate that as loud as we possibly can this week. But not just this week, beyond this week. But Lord, I pray that this Christmas would give us opportunity. That this Christmas would give us opportunity to share that gospel with our families. To share that gospel with our weird uncle, with the cousin that we don't like, with grandma and grandpa, with our brothers and sisters. God, I pray that as we gather together and celebrate the togetherness of our individual families, Lord, that 
the light of the eternal family will shine through us. Lord, I pray that tonight you have encouraged us and equipped us to go out and live out the gospel every single day. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to remember that the mission starts after church. We pray all of this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. Merry Christmas. You are dismissed.